Welcome to the Ark and Anth podcast. It's your host, Michael, here again. And this is the podcast all about how we study people in the past. To close off this week, we have archaeologist Neil Ackerman on the show. Neil, are you there? I am. Hello. Hi. How are you today? I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. Yourself? Uh, I'm doing well. And where are you calling in from? I'm in Orkney in Scotland. Oh, wow. So I, I know that in uh, in Scotland, it's uh, 9.30 in the morning over there. Yeah. Uh, from what I know about you <laughs> from Twitter, I'm guessing that getting up to do what you need to do in the morning is something that you're quite accustomed to, right? Well, kind of. <laughs> yeah, I've got <laughs> two, two young kids and a puppy as well. So there's generally... We are up early, whether, you know, how conscious we are. <laughs> it's, it's more kind of sleepwalking through the morning. But yes. <laughs> how, how old are they? Uh, three and five. Oh, okay, that's cool. Um, I understand that you are a, an archaeologist. Could you explain a little bit more about your, your current roles or, you know, like what work you're most involved with in 2019? Sure. Um, I... I've just started a PhD um, at the beginning of this month, actually. So just finishing my first month of that. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, I I moved up to Orkney to do the PhD, but we moved up before I'd got the funding or anything sorted. Um, we mainly moved up to accommodate my son starting school and stuff like that. Yeah. So I set up as a kind of freelance archaeologist doing bits and bobs. Um, which grew into a small company. So I have a few staff and I'm kind of running that on the side of doing the PhD. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to do a PhD? It was something I've been keen to do for, for a while. Um, I wasn't sure when I was going to do it. Part of the thing that prompted to do it now was, like I say, my son is about, he's started school this year and we've moved around a lot with him and thought, right, well, we should probably stay put somewhere mm-hmm. because... You know, he's getting to an age now where that matters and thought Orkney was a place we'd want to do that. Um, I did my undergrad up here, so we lived here for a few years before. Cool. And the other thing that kind of prompted me to go now was that I wasn't sure what funding opportunities that were going to be available post-Brexit. Mm-hmm. So I thought if I get my funding before Brexit and get that tied down, then, you know, there's less stress. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and for all the listeners who are you know, around the world, um, where is Orkney exactly for those who don't know already? And and what is the environment like there? Um, Orkney, it's a group of islands uh, off the the north coast of mainland Scotland. Um, I think there's about 70 islands in all, but they're not all inhabited. Some of them are quite small. Mm -hmm. The climate is cold and windy, basically. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Because of the geology, it's very kind of flat and rolling. Um, So you can never really escape the wind. Mm-hmm. There are also very few trees, but it's incredibly fertile uh, yeah. and has been for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that makes it so interesting in kind of pre-Roman period because you farm here and it works. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's cold and windy, but you also, I mean, during the summer, you've got almost 24 hours of sunlight, which on the flip side means on the winter, you've got almost no sunlight, but mm-hmm. you do get some quite amazing I don't know. It's, it's a nice place to live. I really yeah. enjoy it. Okay. Um, it has its challenges, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite beautiful. Oh, was that was that? A pet? <laughs> yeah, sorry, that was my cat just <laughs> crawling over me. Uh, uh, trying to think of a good segue. Uh, <laughs> in Scottish prehistory, do we know a lot about the animals that were in the environment? <laughs> yeah, um, there's. Uh, you do. You've got a lot of uh, red deer, which you don't have now. Boar, 
goat stroke sheep, <laughs> kind of the a fairly normal range of mammals that you would expect to find kind of around mm-hmm. Scotland at that point. In, in your PhD, are you hoping to study a... Um like a segment of time in prehistory specifically? Yeah, I'm, I'm focusing on the Neolithic. Um, so 5,000 years ago-ish. Um, depends, depends exactly who you ask, but, and it covers a period of around 1,000 years. Um, I'll probably not contain myself exactly to being within mm-hmm. the Neolithic. I'll, I'll go on either side of it. Um, so how, Neolithic is essentially defined as when agriculture begins and people start staying still on farming instead of hunter right. gathering. Um, it's way more complicated than that, but as a simple premise, that's, that's more or less how it works. Yeah. That's and fascinating. I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm looking at Neolithic kind of domestic architecture and settlement architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, previously, the, for various reasons, the period has been looked at from the monumental architecture and the big tombs and stone circles and standing stones and trying to understand society from that point of view. Right. Um, which is a perfectly valid way to do it. But it, the kind of the top down how society is controlled by elites or whatever you're wanting to say is one way to look at society. But if, then if you look at it from the bottom up, you're going to get a different viewpoint, mm-hmm. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's why I'm trying to, that's the kind of the way I'm trying to look at it. Cool. Uh, I I would love to hear from you about what you think characterizes the um, Scottish Neolithic uh, architecture. Um, And are there different different spaces for different purposes? Like, you know, part of it would be maybe like ritual or religious spaces. Other buildings would be more um, for domestic living and for tool making, that kind of thing. It's tricky because it's never this kind of broad study. I'm doing the whole of Scotland. and it is going to be very broad and kind of almost surface level, but it's not been done before. So without that, then it's difficult to get into more of the specifics. Um, Scotland does is unique in its the the kind of preserved buildings from the Neolithic in Europe. It's one of the best countries, and it's just not really received much attention. Mm-hmm. You've got a lot of similarities with the Irish houses but then not as well um and you have these huge timber halls um appearing in in scotland that you know big massive you know 20 meter long 10 meter wide type things um and lots of debate about them but only i think for well, there's a couple more excavated just recently but maybe six excavated in total mm-hmm. um and a lot of the understanding of the Neolithic of mainland Scotland comes from those sites, yeah. Um, which is obviously, it has its issues. It's, it's also, for a long time, it's been the only thing that's available. So, you know, mm-hmm. you can't be too harsh on what's gone on before. Um, but hopefully this work should kind of put them more into a context. Mm-hmm. And um, do you have any opinion on like why why you think Scottish archaeology has not been as much given a lot of attention compared to maybe some other British or European context? It's partly Orkney's fault. Uh, Orkney has incredible Neolithic buildings. I mean, you've got Scarabray, the Neolithic village. It's preserved because it's built in stone. Uh, the, the geology of Orkney means you've got flagstone that just splits off into beautiful little 
very easily built Lego blocks almost. It's just so easy to build with them. Um, so everyone built in stone. Although that's now showing not to be completely true, but um, the focus has been on Orkney and then how that compares to kind of Wessex and Southern England. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the middle just kind of gets missed out. You don't have the kind of, you know, easy easy for a public to understand in terms of here is a stone house, right. they live there. It's really easy to, to kind of, for the public to get their head around it. And then, so they become tourist attractions and the funding gets pulled there and mm-hmm. the research gets pulled there because they're incredible buildings. Uh, the stuff on mainland Scotland, you know, you, you've got a kind of, a few patches of slightly different coloured mm-hmm. mud, <laughs> which is difficult to get the public excited about that. Um, and, it's difficult yeah. as well, uh, which, you know, I think it's kind of needed probably a PhD to to get things going. There's, there's been Gordon Barclay at Glasgow has done a lot of work highlighting what there is and what work needs to be done to see what there is. Um, but And various others have, have done a lot of really good work, but bringing the whole of Scotland together to discuss it like that hasn't yeah. been done before. And, and why why does it excite you like to look at, uh, to notice things like the mud changing color or to, <laughs> to look at, you know, not big monuments and not big tombs, but just kind of looking at more um, broadly speaking, like broader society. I think I, there's a couple of reasons I got into archeology span in the first place. I, I liked history when I was at school and stuff. And then I kind of thought, well, history is about, you know, most of it is about rulers and the kind of the elite level because they're the ones who are recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought archaeology would be a better way. I wanted to know what life for me would be like in whatever period I was studying. Right. Um, and I'm obviously not a monarch. So <laughs> kind of, I thought archaeology would be a good kind of pathway into that. Um, of course, then going into archaeology and studying it, it's not that straightforward. Um, and especially, I mean, the Neolithic is a period I'm really interested in. And the study has been from the point of view of monumental architecture and kind of elite control of the landscape and things like that, mm-hmm. which basically goes into the history that I wasn't so interested in. Right. So one of the things I'm wanting to do this PhD is turn the period into what I wanted it to be when I started researching it. Mm-hmm. So if I can have that point of view kind of going alongside the perfectly valid looking at it from a monumental way, then I think it'll give more balance to the understanding of the period. Mm-hmm. Um, like this uh, term Neolithic, uh, when we like go to different world regions, uh, I also did it on the Neolithic period, but in, in the Baltics of, of Europe, mm. like in Estonia and Latvia. And um, from my own reading, I understand that like the term Neolithic is different uh, depending on the context of what archaeologists actually are saying that has changed yeah. about um, the environment or, or lifestyle, um, what they're eating. I was wondering in Scotland what what defines the Neolithic period. Maybe that's a, di- a difficult question, but yeah, what do you think? Yeah, um, it is a tricky question and it's probably something I'm going to be wrestling with throughout this PhD and I'll probably have a different answer in six months' time and then again in six months' time. But <laughs> right. I think, I mean, I'm my interest is in architecture and there is a marked change in the architecture 
of the Neolithic compared to what went before, where people are kind of moving around a lot more and buildings are a lot more, they, they appear to be more temporary. Um, whether that comes from a research bias of, oh, they're hunter-gatherers, this is a small building, it was temporary. Well, they're farmers, here's a small building, they're being sedentary, right. um, which is part of the thing I'm going to be looking at as well. Um, but there's a, there's a, there's a mm-hmm. you don't have monumental architecture really before the Neolithic. That's one of the kind of the big defining features of it. You've got kind of big chamber tombs and standing stones and things like that. Um, but I think, I mean, it has always traditionally been they're farming, but they've not got metal yet as the kind of thing. Um, but that right. doesn't really hold up much at all. Is it because like previous to the Neolithic, there was still maybe some like experiments with farming and even during the Neolithic, still some hunting going on? Definitely. And I mean, farming is great if you've got a guaranteed crop, but you're also limiting how much food you've got. So you're going to have to supplement that mm-hmm. somehow by continuing your hunter-gathering tradition. Um, and hunter-gatherers, you know, if, if you have a cleared space in the woodland for example animals are going to be attracted to that and if you're wanting to hunt animals you'll know where there's a good clearing and you'll maybe encourage that clearing to remain which is in a sense farming um and i think as well there's no reason why you wouldn't have hunter gathering communities coexisting alongside farming communities and trading with one another to get the kind of most best of each other's worlds um so you know, dividing up uh, the past into neat little periods is very handy, but it doesn't actually say much with the reality of the situation. I don't think. And mm-hmm. uh, before you like embark on your, in, you know, really get into the meat of your PhD um, coming up, are you hoping to go visit the sites, or are you hoping to uh, consult previous reports, or a bit of both? It's, I'm going to be doing little to no field work. Pure, for a couple of reasons. One is that it's very expensive in money and time, and I don't have much of either mm-hmm. to get this done in. Also, there's a, a massive data, amount of data that, that's just sitting there in terms of the uh, kind of commercial archaeology reports, which is where in the, the planning system in this country, if you are going to build a housing scheme or a road or something like that, you're responsible for paying for the archaeology to be recorded before it gets removed. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a lot, a huge amount of stuff sitting in those reports um, and they're just kind of grey literature. They're not peer-reviewed. I mean, they are peer-reviewed in that they go through the county archaeologists and it all has to be up to scratch. But um, it's very dry reading there's very little interpretation that goes on. Um, it's basically just, this is what I found, bam, 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 bam. Um, right. So my, I'm basically going to be spending the next few years collecting all that data, cleaning it all, and then seeing what patterns I can find from within all that. Right. Um, and that's a big enough job without me <laughs> right, <but it's, laughs> going yeah. and getting new data. I don't need new data. Right. It's, like, um, it's collating everything that's already been um, reported, but no one has has uh, previously tried to combine them all together. Yeah. 
Cool. Yeah. Um, and, and how long have you been an archaeologist? When, when was the moment, do you think, that you truly became an archaeologist or <laughs> knew that archaeology would be your chosen profession? Uh, see, I, well, I left school when I was 16 with very little qualifications and kind of muddled about doing various minimum wage jobs for a chunk. And then I went back to college, um, which here is like a kind of it's like a high school type thing rather than I know in America colleges like university, mm-hmm. but yeah, um, did my school exams there and thought archaeology sounds good. Um, I went, as it turned out, I had a friend whose father was an archaeologist in Greece. So I thought, wow, well, go ahead and spend a few weeks there. It's a good spot <laughs> to see what this is all about. Um, so I spent a summer out in Greece doing various bits and bobs, um, and just absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I graduated from my undergrad in 2016, and then worked as an archaeologist in the local government um, service in Aberdeenshire Council, uh, which is where I kind of, because that's obviously where all this grey literature comes in. Yeah, um, all these commercial reports, which is when I kind of it started clicking with me how much data there is just sitting there that no one's really using and it's really good quality data mm-hmm. um but yes i don't know i don't know when i became an archaeologist as a <laughs> as a definition um, okay well when you're when you're working with the you know commercial bodies and like local government what are some of the unique characteristics that that make doing archaeology there in that context different from say doing purely academic investigations i think the I mean, the way it's done, you have to dig incredibly fast um, because, you know, you, you, there may be a, like a major infrastructure project that you are one part of a massive system and everybody's having to meet their deadlines. Um, so whereas a research dig, you may kind of come and scrape around for a few years, for a few weeks each summer and then close it back up again. It's you dig it and you often dig it to destruction because it's going to be destroyed anyway, uh, which is quite often with a research dig, you have specific research questions and when you feel you've answered them, you stop. Whereas with this, you just, you, you dig it completely. Um, mm-hmm. So you've got a slightly different kind of data and often there are research questions that get put into the commercial side of things, but mm-hmm. you know, there's also just the practical, just get this dug and recorded. Do you have properly. an example like of a, of a, a time or a case where uh, you were rushed for time and then how did you try to like combat those, those challenges? Yeah. And I've not done much commercial digging myself. I've done a bit, but not a huge amount. Um, but you, you just, you get very, good at what you're doing because you're doing it all the time. Um, I think a lot of kind of academics are quite snooty about the commercial digging, uh, partly because it is very fast and kind of to them perhaps too fast, but you, you have professional archeologists who do that full time and dig full time and they can work three or four times faster than a student who's maybe on their first or second research Mm -hmm. dig. Uh, it's a completely different kind of speed yeah. to it. So I think you just, the units get good at it. They know what methods work in terms of getting the most recording out of digging fast and, and you get some 
outstanding um, digs done that way. Mm-hmm. They often get overlooked. I think, I mean, the the methodology of the dig will have been agreed months beforehand and should be quite well planned, you know, before you go in. So if you were to show up on a dig, there would be jobs that they knew this needed done. Now, go and do it. I think, I mean, from my experience of research digs, you're going quite slowly using a trail, mm-hmm. um, which... Partly depends on what research questions are being asked and what kind of sites you're on. Sometimes have incredibly kind of difficult to dig floor deposits, and you couldn't be going faster. With commercial digging, you know you're using your trowel some of the time, but quite often you're using a mattock or something like that. You you learn how to dig in a way that mm-hmm. preserves, you know, you're, you're recording it properly, but you're digging it fast. Whereas a kind of a student research digger, they may not know the archaeology well enough to understand what they can go through fast and what they can go through slow. So generally you on the side of caution and, and do things a bit kind of slower paced. Yeah. In, in your time of doing, uh, you know, archaeology and this kind of work, what have you seen? Um, have you seen anything uh, change quite a lot about the field of archaeology or have you been um, surprised or, you know, what are you still learning about the field as you get more experience? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm still relatively new to it. As I said, I graduated in 2016. So I've only had a few years of doing this, not as an undergrad. Um, with the way things, a lot of things are going, the kind of, with cross academia, the, the kind of, the challenging of existing systems and trying to open it up um because i mean archaeology is notoriously rich white men it's you know and i think that's beginning to be challenged and i think i mean it's entirely positive it's it's wonderful in terms of going forward but i think mm-hmm. i think that's probably going to be one of the kind of biggest changes in terms of the academic side of things in terms of the how the industry works at a commercial level uh, Brexit's going to have a fairly big impact on that. Um, archaeologists, the kind of proposed minimum salary for EU workers coming into Britain mm-hmm. is a chunk higher than your average archaeologist salary. Yeah. And there's a lot of EU national archaeologists working in Britain. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's um, something that a lot of people, uh, people who are not archaeologists can uh, take away from our work, um, especially like in our like current political climate? Yeah, I think it's tricky because people quite often try and kind of lump together prehistory with modern politics in a way that isn't always suitable. I think for me, the thing that always kind of gets people is the basic kind of principle that, you know, a Neolithic person is exactly the same as me or you. There's no difference in kind of intelligence or any of that. The technology is just different. Um, And I think that's one of the things that really kind of gets to people when they start being around archaeology for the first time. This idea of the kind of the past being other and us being this kind of advanced human race or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially in Brexit, there's been all sorts of really mm-hmm. fairly poor comparisons between research and Brexit in a way that seems to just be about getting clicks. This is the first Brexit when you have a DNA analysis of 
you know, a split between what's now Britain and what's now mainland Europe. It's, it's not. It's the, the whole concept of immigration and immigration is completely different in a culture that that's just, you know, they're the same as me and you, but their, their cultures are completely different in a way that we probably wouldn't recognize. Mm-hmm. And I think talking about immigration in the past in the same way that people talk about immigration now is right it's a yeah a different context yeah mm-hmm. are there uh, like other areas of archaeology that you've been uh, interested in besides what you're concentrating on in your phd yeah i mean i i wrote a thing a while ago about white supremacy in archaeology which came from an article that was published in the kind of the press here about minority of Odinists who are white supremacists trying to claim kind of prehistoric sites as symbols of the master white race. Um, and archaeology has not done enough to counter that narrative or given enough consideration to the fact that it could be twisted and used as that, mm-hmm. given current political climates and the way that archaeology has been abused in the past by archaeologists and non-archaeologists, there needs to be more awareness of how the research can be twisted mm-hmm. um, once it's been published and a kind of some kind of thought in, of how that's going to be countered. Um, I think people kind of, yeah. they publish the research and then go, well, it's out of my hands now, whatever gets done with it, gets done with it, which I don't think is ethically appropriate. Mm-hmm. And and so what do you think that um, archaeologists can do to try and improve that um, communication and the understanding there? Just talking to the public in an accessible way is, I mean, the narratives put forward by groups who are trying to twist it to being white supremacists, they, they fall down under even a tiniest little bit of analysis. And that needs to be done and put out to the public in a way that's easy to understand mm-hmm. um, and isn't kind of, I think there's a danger of going, well, we're the archaeologists and we know the truth about the archaeology and these people are just making it up because um, we're just making it up, but we're quite good at it. I guess, right. in a way. Yeah. And, and it just, it's just kind of looking down our noses at everybody else and being snooty at, about it. I think it's just kind of, you know, they're saying that this is, the kind of the evidence we have that this is not the case at all. Yeah. Um, and I think it can be done quite simply. I think uh, it's just, you know, in people, it's easy for me to say, I can go out and challenge that. I'm a white man. Um, others will have far worse kickback if they start challenging it. So I think there is also mm-hmm. a responsibility on people who look like me to be at the head of this. Right. I think that I think about this quite a lot also. And I feel like there are a lot of other people out there who uh, push, you know, pseudoscience or Mm. um, ideas that are, you know, not founded on any uh, data, let's say. Um, But, you know, what they're able to do is is tell a story for sure. And they they know how to Mm. twist narrative and they know how to spin, spin, you know, our findings really well in order to like push their own agendas and what we have to do. Um, it's, you know, our unique challenge is basically, uh, trying to 
communicate it, communicate more accurate ideas that are based on data. Um, and also, you know, learn and practice our, our own narrative telling, like our own storytelling, because that's what actually uh, gets people to listen is if we can actually tell them in a, in an accessible way. Definitely. Yeah. I think part of, I mean, a strength of pseudoscience, if you want to call it that, is that they give definite answers. Mm. Um, whereas archaeologists generally don't because you know that at any point new data is going to come along that will challenge right. it. And that's part of the, the, the whole thing. It's part of the fun of it. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, it's a tricky narrative to beat when they're saying this is definitely answer based on, don't look at that. Yeah, you're really correct with that. I think like, you know, when you ask, um, you know, what is the Neolithic or when were the first people ever in Scotland or, or some questions like that, our question, our, our answers are, well, it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, yes. We don't get to tap into that um, kind of human need for like, you know, categories and definite answers. We don't get to, uh, you know, feed that psychology, but mm-hmm. other people find it easy to do so because they don't, they're not worried about whether it's accurate or not. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there has to be a better answer to it. it's complicated. I think we need to do better um, as a, an industry in telling it better. Mm-hmm. Are there any like prehistoric or historical sites that you've been to and would recommend anyone visiting Scotland to go visit? Yeah. I mean, Orkney is just covered in stuff. It's, it's an incredible place. So if you're wanting to go somewhere and see a huge amount of stuff without having to travel much. <laughs> Orkney's a great place for that. Um, the One of the places I, I love in kind of mainland Scotland is the Cranog Centre uh, at the Tay, which is, they've built a replica Cranog, which is a kind of timber structure that's built over uh, body water with a causeway going out into it. Um, and where the water levels have remained more or less the same, the timber structures, the timbers are preserved where they've collapsed into the water um, because you don't have the oxygen in the water to break it down. So, you, you know, they have log boats sitting on the, the bottom of the, the, the loch there that, you know, they're thousands of years old. And But the, the actual centre itself is, they've done a brilliant job of, you get to go and sit in a cranog and see what it's like to actually be inside one. And then they've got all sorts of demonstrations on how to carve wood and spin and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's, uh, it kind of blew me away when I went to that place. Cool. Yeah. Uh, how large is the structure that you're talking about? Um, I, I don't know the, the dimensions off the top of my head, but it's, I mean, I think the group that we were in, they kind of take you in as a big group and, there was, I don't know, about 20 odd of us and we were comfortably sat mm-hmm. within like a third, cool. taking up about a third of the force. So they're, they're big structures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, really amazing. It's like um, a testament to like how uh, innovative, you know, previous people were. Yeah, yeah. Are there sites around the UK or around the world that you haven't been to yet and would love to study or at least take your kids to go visit maybe? Yeah, well, I mean, I've never been to north or south america um and south america is a place i would love to go to um and see the archaeology there i, I did a few kind of essays and while well, i was doing my undergrad on mm-hmm. kind of mayan uh society and things like that and it would be amazing to see some of that um i think yeah 
there isn't really any country that I wouldn't like to go to to see the archaeology. You know, right. it's gonna. I mean, the world is there to explore, um, mm. and I would quite like to see a lot of it. Yeah, and for us, it's like also there's a whole other world uh, in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that your kids could one day become archaeologists as well? Well, they're both dog, um, so they could do if they wanted to yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the inklings of like early archaeologists there yeah well uh, my son loved it and he's pretty good at it as well actually um, surprisingly oh. he uh, yeah he can do a tidy up a section edge quite nice when he was <laughs> four so um, I think partly he just liked getting to spend a day outside getting muddy which yeah. kids tend to, tend to enjoy yeah, I mean so do we right oh, yeah exactly yeah <laughs> Has being a young dad or, um, you know, doing a PhD uh, in academia as a dad, has it, mm. has it changed your research in some way or informed how you look at people at all? In the yeah, past? I think children are largely ignored um, in the study of prehistory. Um, you know, it's acknowledged, oh yeah, there, there were children, but I mean, seeing how much having children has impacted the way I live my life. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think you can take them out of the picture at all. They, they, they are informing the way people are building buildings and how they're living in the buildings. And, you know, if you have a completely open floor space where children can crawl about and a massive fire in the middle, you've got some obvious dangers there. So there, must, there has to be ways that space is controlled around children as much as it is around ritual or social practices. For sure. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's it's very difficult to tease apart those things. Um, But I mean, much in the way that because of the history of our profession, women were largely ignored in the past because it was men studying it. Um, The hangover of that with children continues where you have men who had no parental responsibilities that they were interested in doing. Um, a lot of the time being the ones who are doing the research and just did not understand this as being an important part of it. Of course. Um, so I think I'm not sure how and if my work in this PhD can contribute towards that, but it's certainly something I've got in the back of my mind that I would like to try and incorporate anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, we are like uh, nearing the end of the year. Um, what are your upcoming plans like uh, until, you know, around winter time and, you know, into the next year? Um, a massive amount of reading and a massive amount of data collection, essentially, is what my next cool. six to eight months to a year is going to be, um, which is going to be great. I, I still, you know, I, I go in the office and sit and read and I'm kind of waiting for someone to right. come and tell me to get on and do some actual work but <laughs> that is my actual work it's still it's still kind of slightly mind-blowing to me that you know people are happy to pay me to do that it's it's great <laughs> uh, so yeah it's still still all very new but it's ah, it's, it's a wonderful thing to get to do mm-hmm. I mean I, I really like the data collection part of my PhD too it's mm. um you know, like, yeah, I just felt very like fortunate that, oh, I'm, I'm tasked with like, uh, my job is to actually just find out stuff that I find interesting. Okay, yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah. I do, I, there's a strange part of me that loves getting huge amounts of data and tidying it all up. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know 
why I like doing that. And it's a bit of a strange yeah. thing to do, but it, it gives me pleasure to, <laughs> to to make it all neat and tidy and then be able to talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm sure I won't be seeing that in a couple of years time, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll see. Um, yeah. if, if people want to ask you questions and, and follow this work that you're doing going forward, can they find you somewhere online? Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter and my company, Ackerman Archaeology, has a website that I, I kind of blog on occasionally and I'll probably be using that to do some blogging about the PhD as I'm going along. Um, awesome. So those are probably two fairly good places to to keep an eye on cool. if you're interested. Yeah, that's awesome. And towards the end of every episode, I ask the guests if they can come up with a hashtag. Can you think of something uh, good for this episode? Oh, uh, I guess Neolithic, but spell N-E-I-L. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, N-E-I-L-I-T-H-I-C. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's a really good one. <laughs> um, okay. So listeners, if you want to indicate to us that you've listened to the whole interview, then definitely use the hashtag Neolithic uh, on social media. You can follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit. You can also find new episodes coming up on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find podcasts. All of that information is at arcananth.com. I'm so thankful also to all the patrons who continue to support the show. You can find out more information about the patron program at patreon.com slash arcananthpod. Neil, thank you so much for speaking with me this morning. Thank you. And uh, I, I wish you all the best in your next, you know, eight months to a year of data collection. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for having me. When you're, when you're finished, you should, uh, you should come back and, um, you know, tell us what you found. Yeah, I will do. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.